Hey everybody, Mark Augustinelli back with Beers and Careers here. Uh, as always, Beers and Careers is brought to you by the Davis Companies, www.daviscos.com. That's D-A-V-I-S-C-O-S.com. Today's guest is Nina Eigerman. Uh, Nina is a badass woman. Uh, she uh, works for Bullhorn, which is a uh, technology platform software company that powers our industry, the staffing industry that I'm involved with. Um, Nina's got one hell of a pedigree, but her energy is uh, is unquantifiable. She was awesome. We had a blast. Um, we talked a lot about developing your expertise. Um, that passion is not enough. There needs to be a place for you to actually, uh, you know, a marketplace to contribute to. Um, and, you know, one of those people where I was like, man, I wish we were able to do this in person because uh, you could tell we would have had a lot more fun. But uh, nonetheless, we had a riveting conversation. Could have talked to her for hours, and I hope you enjoy. Nina Eigerman from uh, Bullhorn. Can you share with people maybe your exact role today? Sure. So I'm the SVP of Alliances and Business Development, which okay. means that I work with our ecosystem partners. Mm-hmm. So we have about 150 companies that integrate with Bullhorn. Um, so we get a lot of inbound requests from companies who are interested in marketing to our customer base, which is staffing firms yes. like yourself. Um, and I listen to their pitch and help them determine whether it makes sense for them to become a Bullhorn partner and then work with them as they advance in the partnership and work with yes. more and more of our customers. And then, and for the audience who um, doesn't know the staffing world that well, Bullhorn is the uh, is the software that makes our business run. Uh, Davis is a, a proud supporter of Bullhorn. We are um, a customer of Bullhorn and love it. So it's a uh, thanks for joining us that way too. But um, it's a good uh, it's a good partnership. Yeah. From the Davis perspective. So um, now I usually like to start off with just some easy ones to get it rolling and let people know you a little bit. Um, it is called Beers and Careers. Do you have a favorite cocktail or libation? I do. And it's another one of those things that I miss from uh, working in a real office because yes. our office was at 100 Summer Street or it still is at 100 Summer Street. And we had Serafina's that was just downstairs. And I have to say, I'm going to give a little shout out to Walter from Serafina's because okay. he makes the most fabulous old fashioned. Mm. And um, I had a colleague, Silas, who introduced me to it. So it's now called the Silas. And you can just say, hey, Walter, can I have a Silas? And he pours you the old fashioned. It's great. Is, is it a take on old fashioned? Like, is it a certain? Apparently, because because when I ordered anywhere else, I don't like it as much. So oh. it is clearly, it is something special about his old fashioned, but it's really good. I love that. You might be the first person that's mentioned a bourbon thus far, which is which is also kind of fun. I'd be interested to know what that, the details of that the drink. The details of that drink. Well, once, you know, once we're back downtown, by you, you can, we can Walter. have, we can have a, have a, a, a Silas together. I'll come, I'll come meet Walter. Um, favorite curse word? So I'm from Brooklyn, so obviously my favorite curse is fuck you, but yeah. you know, <laughs> I'll just come right out and say that. I'm Love shameless. A New Yorker. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker. There yeah. you go. That is, um, that's a, that is a, uh, a weekly I made you blush. A, a weekly favorite. No, I'm, I, unfortunately, well, I guess it depends on your perspective. Unfortunately, if you're my teachers growing up, or fortunately, if you're a friend, I grew up in a, in a, Household with um, a father who uh, worked in construction, and I remember the first time I ever went uh, on to his office for a snow day, and I was like, "Oh my God, Dad, you talk like that to people!" <laughs> and then totally shattered what, yeah. I, what my real realistic nature of it. So no, um, "fuck" is a very common uh, curse word on the podcast. So it's it no just it's, it. You it know, at one point. 
At one point, my my dad ju- did ask my mother if maybe she could say shit a little bit more because then she wouldn't say fuck so much. <laughs> did it work out? It didn't. No. <laughs> That's awesome. She curses like a sailor. That's um, great. Favorite guilty pleasure? It's got to be Fritos. They're okay. just great. They're yeah. just great. I can just eat like a whole bag of them. That's awesome. But, that but you know, not not the healthiest food COVID. in the world. It's a great COVID snack, though. Yeah. Um, but you know, awesome. sometimes I get those like really big corn nuts, and then somehow they feel like they're less guilty than the Fritos, even though they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's funny. I'm a huge Fritos fan, and I will admit I like the Fritos barbecue, which is a little weird, um, and the scoops. Mm. Fritos scoops. But I like the traditional. I'm a traditionalist. I want yeah, the regular yeah. Fritos. Stan, I like it. Yeah. Not, not judging. Are you are you a quote person at all? Am I a what person at all? A quote. Do you like quotes? You know, I I, I had to think about the quote question for a moment. Okay. You know, I know that you were gonna ask me what my favorite quote was, and yeah. I was like, Well, what is my favorite quote? And I and I have to say, I, I was like, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Mm-hmm. It's probably like, you know, one of my favorites. Yes, I found that is such an interesting question to ask guests because they either have them, but they search for them, or they can't choose which one is their favorite. It's like there's no in-between. You either yeah. are or you aren't. So um, no no worries. How about your first job? So my first job was so Brooklyn. I was a bagel seller at Moisha's Bagels on Clark Street in Brooklyn. So awesome. I, you know. Awesome. Got to now, see them boil the bagels. How about, I'm going to digress for a second here. I've been to, I believe it's Brooklyn Bagel or uh, what's it in Framingham, Mass? What's the place? And they say that they bring in the water from Brooklyn. Oh, I don't even know. I usually get my bagels here from Rosenfeld's, which is in Newton Center, which is, okay. you know, it's it's an okay bagel. But yes. I think even in New York, people say, oh, these aren't bagels like they were bagels when we were kids. Right. So there's no. So there is no real yeah. like platonic yeah. ideal of bagel. There's no pleasing the uh, the no. the stamp. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Now, anything about your daily routine people might find a little weird? So I, I have to say, I, I, you did send me this question in advance, and I had to think about this one. Because so I was like, okay, weird, but not too weird. Yeah. And actually, <laughs> hey, hey, you need it. You can go the weird, as you want. <laughs> the weirdest thing is I get dressed for work every day, like the full thing. Like I am wearing shoes and a skirt and like the stuff you can't even see like I want to make sure that I feel professional at work and I, and at the end of the day I come home and I change my clothes and then I'm no longer at work you know I think we're cut from a similar cloth I've had to pull it together and only wear I usually am like in a jacket and a button down which seems a little aggressive going to the dry cleaner all the times when no one is seeing me so I've kind of come down to golf casual but I'm the same yeah. way I have, a, like, I, have a, I have a joke. Nobody wears their practice jersey on game day. Yeah. I, like, and I just want to, I also want to make that delineation between I'm at home and I'm at work. And yeah, I'm still at home when I'm at work, but I feel different. It is very mental. It's like kind of what we were talking about just before we started, how I even coming to the office for me, even when there's no one here, just mentally does something for me. It's like, yeah. I know my brain is in work mode. So I like that. I like that one's People will find that weird. In Mark's uh, world, that's awesome. I, I'm a, I'm I'm a huge fan. So, um, Now, did you have any idea when you were growing up that you would be doing what you're doing today? I mean, obviously, maybe not in the staffing um, ecosystem, but more so in the partnership talking to strangers world. 
Are you, I mean, like, no, no kid is like, oh, I want to grow up to be an alliances professional. <laughs> <Right, laughs> like, that's why I think. <laughs> like, no way. Um, although I did have a kid when I was working in investment banking, I had a kid who was interviewing. He's like, I always wanted to be an investment banker. And I'm like, that's just bullshit. Like, yeah. no, you didn't always want to do this. No, so no, I, I had no idea. And in fact, um, my dad was a dentist and my grandfather was a dentist and I thought I was going to be a dentist. I was going to grow up. I was going to go be pre-med. I was going to, you know, but no, I, I didn't really like the organic chemistry thing. And it was a little intense and, you know, this is where I ended up. It was sort so of, let's hear, let's hear how you got there. Give us like the, uh, reader's digest. Okay. So the of, reader's uh, digest view. Let's see if I can do this quickly. I kind of come full circle. So I graduated from college and I worked at a, at a software company. Mm -hmm. um, which actually went under. So okay. then I worked in consulting and I kind of did a very classic consulting business school back into consulting kind of a route. Um, was at McKinsey for eight years oh, cool. um, and then um, worked at a, another internet company um, and then worked in staffing. I had um, some classmates who had started Aquin um, back when it was Mac Temps, like back in the day. Um, and I ended up um, joining the company and um, running a bunch of different business units there, which was an amazing experience. Um, and um, and then I ended up a little circuitous route, like left there, went to another staffing firm, ended up staffing myself on a project at a Fortune 500 company, um, Avery Dennison, Framingham. Um, and I was there for a couple of years and then um, left there um, and had an opportunity to become an investment banker. Um, and I thought, oh, that would be interesting, you know, really bring companies together, make big changes happen. Hated it. Mm. Like it was the worst choice I've ever made. Um, and then uh, ended up at Bullhorn. So kind of a kind of a, a zigzaggy route, uh, a little consulting, a little investment banking, a little Fortune 500, a little startup. You know, like it's a lot of stuff in there. That is. Um, but you know, there were some real themes and there definitely is some similarities between the types of things that I do, including, you know, I do enjoy talking to strangers. Yeah, that's too good. Now, did you start, like, we can, start, we can pick it all apart, but just interested in particular, you were excited about the investment banking thing. What did you expect it to be? And then what, how did it turn out to not be as you perceived it? So I really expected it to be, um, learning a lot of new things, which it was, um, and working with a lot of different companies in a lot of different industries, which it was. I expected it to be more having a big impact on companies and really making change happen. Mm -hmm. um, and what I found was that um, there were a lot of deals that didn't happen. And so mm -hmm. a big percentage of the work that you were doing didn't go anywhere. It was like mm -hmm. you had a bunch of different at-bats and, and then sometimes things would would a deal would break and it had nothing to do with what you had done or it was just the fundamentals of the company. I wanted to go in and help the companies improve their operations, change their economics, make their PL stronger. And that wasn't my role. And it was frustrating to me not to be able to really get my hands dirty and, and make a difference that way. Did you feel like when you were in the consulting gig, you were making more of a difference? Yes. Yeah. So I kind of found myself trying to turn the banking gig into a consulting gig. And that just wasn't, you know, it wasn't the role that we were playing there. Right. Okay. That, that makes sense. I, um, I mean, you, uh, I'd love to hear your take on how it was to work for McKinsey too, just because 
as um, I don't have my MBA, but as a guy who uh, loves to read, I mean, much of what I read or case study wise comes from them report wise. Right. I mean, them Gallup, but they're in that top echelon, as we know. What was that like? Like, What was was that experience like? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, I had not intended to go back into consulting after business school because I had worked in consulting before business school. So I was like, I'm not going to do that again. Right. Um, And uh, but I got, you know, my competitive juices flowing because I interviewed for a summer associate position at McKinsey and um, got to the final round um, and didn't make the cut. So there were 250 people first round, like 40 people second round, 11 people third round, two people got the offer. And I wasn't one of those two people. So I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to go for it for the for the full time role and see if I get that. And I did. So then I was still interviewing for other jobs. And every time I would go in for an interview, they would say, so what else are you thinking about? And I would say, well, I have an offer from McKinsey. And then they would introduce me to their McKinsey alumni that they had in their company. And every time they would say, wait, you have an offer from McKinsey? And you're not. not You should go do that. (laughs) Every single one of them. And I thought after like the third time that happened, I thought, okay, maybe they're, maybe they're saying something. And they really were because it, it is, or it was, and I I assume it still is really the, the most amazing learning experience because you're being thrown in at the deep end of the pool on some of the most challenging and interesting business problems. You are parachuted into these companies um, and you're full time doing this. So, you know, some consulting firms, you're split up and doing things in multiple places. This is one thing and you get to really just dive in and learn everything about it. And then the CEO of the company is asking you as a 27 year old, 28 year old, 29 year old. So what do you think we should do? And they're not really asking you, what do you think we should do? Because who are you to be saying what you think? They're asking you, how are you thinking about what we should do? So you learn to structure your thinking. You learn to put a framework around how you're thinking about things and to always bring everyone around you along in the journey of how you solve a business problem so that you're not just saying, well, I think we should go north. You're Mm -hmm. saying the decision about which direction to go in needs to be based on these factors. And I've assessed all of them. And this is my assessment of each of these factors. But here's the the data that would change that assessment. So you're bringing them along and teaching them why we should go north every time. And you might actually be wrong that we shouldn't go north because you might be basing it on the wrong facts. Right. But then they can correct those facts and change the direction. But it's always based on a very structured approach, really uh, methodical. And it's it's really kept me, you know, held me in good stead in everything else that I've done. It's the folks I talk to, and I I can't say it's been exclusively McKinsey, but if you talk to like someone who's worked at a big four accounting firm, but on the consulting side, it seems like those companies do a really good job of training folks to not get distracted by the symptoms of a problem and get down to the core root of it. And I think that like for me, I've got a certain jealousy of like, oh, I do kind of wish I spent some time like in that battlefield because I could see how that would transform the way you think about things going forward. Like, do you have any stories or business problems that you worked on that you just can't forget about 
Because absolutely, absolutely. I can't share any of them because all of the work that we did was very confidential. Um, But I will say that I was I was on the phone um, with another uh, partnership person, uh, actually the the guy who runs partnerships um, for uh, another large software company out on the West Coast, and I'm I'm talking to him about the way that they're structuring their their partnership programs, and we get about ten minutes into the conversation, I said, you know. Ushman, I really am enjoying talking to you. You have a very structured way about thinking about partnership programs and the way you're approaching this. And he said, well, I was a consultant. Yeah. And it turned out he had been at McKinsey for five years and we were speaking the same language. So wow. I think it does create this kind of shared way of approaching the world. Um, and and I, I, I recognized it immediately in him. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that other people can do the same when they're talking mm. to me. That's that's. Uh... That's real. That's a really interesting. It's so funny how you almost speak in the same language as someone just trained the same way. So, oh, it's it's like uh, the business world's version of performance training, like the military has. Kind of exactly. Thing. You know somebody who is who you know who has been through that shared experience and you speak share, the same, speak the same way. Language. So how now? I, I think I kind of alluded to this maybe, or we connected on it before the podcast. I've always thought of this pot, or I'm starting to think of this podcast as for recent college grads or people making career moves. You were someone, um, you might have the best pedigree, by the way, on the podcast with the uh, with undergrad at Harvard and then Sloan MIT. So very impressive. Now, do you, what about, I? for someone who doesn't have that pedigree, is joining a Deloitte or McKinsey, I think is a little bit more of a daunting task, but do you have suggestions on ways where they can go about educating themselves or maybe how they could go about gaining employment at a company like that? So I think that there are a lot of different ways to develop expertise. Um, There's also a number of companies that have started up that have alumni from those companies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I first started in consulting, I actually did start at a a spinoff of Bain. Um, It was a partner from Bain who who had started their own company. So that's a way of getting into the consulting space without necessarily having um, those big names on your resume. Um, And I also think that getting a deep expertise in a particular industry is a great way to gain the credibility that you need mm-hmm. to get into an MBA program, to get a, a big name job. Um, someone gave me the advice when I was coming out of college that I should work at a larger company first. Mm. Um, and I couldn't do that because it was a recession and I couldn't get a job at a larger company. Yeah, right. But I do think it was good advice that um, if you start at a startup that people don't have name recognition, for mm. it's harder to get into a big name than if yeah. you started a big name and then do something oh. different afterwards. Correct, correct. And and I think there's the um, I did not live this, but I funny enough, I got similar advice and also graduated during a recession. Uh, but um, you also I think you see how the machine works at scale. Yeah, I think when you go back to work in a smaller company, it, things are there's a little bit more. Um, you're able to predict the future and see the runway a little better too, which is pretty cool. So how, like, so you mentioned you've, um, I think you mentioned you have a daughter, college age daughter. I so do. Like, like, how are you counseling that demographic or, or your daughter in particular about like how she should go out and develop expertise? Is it that advice of just going after a big company or are there other ways? I think you said you think there's many ways to develop expertise. So yeah. I'd love and to hear actually, your thoughts on it. I think the biggest thing that I have 
tried to impart to my children is around the balance of um, passion and contribution. I think mm -hmm. the biggest disservice that um, we as a society did for the generation that's a little bit older than my daughter was to say, follow your passion, do what you um, really enjoy. And I think it needs to be the intersection of what you enjoy and what has an impact and is valued by others. And if you, it, you know, there's so many people that I meet who are in that age category who are like, I want to be a screenwriter or a showrunner or a photographer. And I'm like, self-expression is super important and everybody should do self-expression just the way that everybody should do athletics. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that everybody can be a professional athlete. Right. Right. So right. Yes, there are a few people who are able to earn a living as an athlete, and there are a few people who are able to earn a living doing self-expression. Mm -hmm. That's not a career choice, either right. one of those. Those are things that you do because you have this burning need inside of you to do those things and to, and to, to express those parts of yourself. But you need to find the things that are valuable to other people and the ways in which you can contribute to society and you can have an impact. Um, so actually, my, I, I'm super proud of my daughter. She's, um, she's doing data science and yes. she's also doing a lot of uh, video work and video storytelling. So mm. um, combining the ability to really understand what's happening in the world quantitatively and then turn that into a narrative that conveys something important to other people, I think is a set of skills that are going to be super valuable to her anywhere she goes, whatever yes. she wants to do. Um, plus, she has a portfolio of videos where she has made a point or or had some kind of a, a narrative trajectory. And so she can show that she can actually effectively do this stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of different ways um, to combine things that you really enjoy to with things that are really valuable. But it's not just I'm going to make videos because I enjoy making videos. Right, right. And, yeah, that and it blends the passion with the contribution in a, in a, in a married way. And I mean, as a person who grew up really earning their living as a salesperson in myself, like you can get by with like meeting people and smiling and being the nicest guy in the room. And you can get by with some good one-liners and value props, but at the end of the day to sell large organizations on complex change or integrations, there's gotta be data and there's gotta be a narrative, right? Cause at the end, because at least in my business or the way I look at it, and eventually the CEO and CFO are getting involved. And it's like, what's the spend and what's the ROI and why? And so, uh, I mean, it's almost her skill set will be applied in so many different things. I mean, which yeah. is, which is uh, and in the staffing business, all we hear about, I don't know, is that technically data? Will she technically go after a data science title job? Will that be what she has? A, she's going to have a data science degree. Yeah. So, yeah. No, probably the number one request we get. And absolutely. Industry. So I think, but it's not, it's not saying I'm just going to find the thing that's the number one request and I'm going to go right. after that right. because that has some, some really negative impact mm -hmm. as well. If you're doing something that you don't enjoy just because there's a high demand for that skill, it's going to come through and you're not going to be successful in that. Well, so, I mean, do you, to go back to your athletics analogy uh, as a guy who grew up playing, um, 
sports the whole way. There was this whole group of kids playing hockey that once we got to high school, it was like, I'm burnt out. It's like, but you're burnt out. Like, and it's like they were doing it for the wrong reasons, but it's kind of like, you know, maybe I can make it at this one day. And it's like, oh, man, you have to be like the top 400 in the world, right? So it's like, you know. But the thing is, we tell our kids who play hockey, you're not going to make it, right? We have that conversation with them. Yes. We cut them from the team and we explain that this is going to be a hobby for them and not a real thing. If someone wants to be the next Lynn Manuel, you know, and, and create the next, you know, hit show on Broadway, we we don't tell them they can't do no. that. No. And so they end up with this whole generation of kids who are like, no, I, I can, you know, be the next Lena Dunham. Like, no, you can't. Yes. Right. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, that's not going to happen. So, like. I, my favorite way of you describing passion with contribution, though, is it takes out, excuse me, it adds the realistic and realism nature to the conversation um, without coming across like a stoic, you know, which can shut people yeah. down, right? It, it, like it, it comes across being like, yeah, yeah, we want you to do what you want to do, but you have to take the self-awareness of your passion and your skills and apply them to the fact that we live in a capitalist society and there's a marketplace and it has needs and you can serve those needs. And yeah. I think that's, and, um, I've and never heard it articulated that way, Nina. I really, it's really, uh, it's a ton of clarity, I think. If you're an 18 year old, 25 year old, or even someone and, changing careers. Yeah. And I think it's not just about, I mean, yes, we live in a capitalist society, but I think this is actually one of the things that, you know, should be true, even in a non-capitalist yes, society, true, is that true. you want to do the things that, are going to help the most people or have the biggest impact for um, improving people's lives. True, it's very true, awesome. So you, obviously, I usually ask people like, did you regret anything along the way? But it's like, do you regret leaving McKinsey? I don't, um, it was 1999 and there were, you know, jobs falling off of trees and true, true. Like, it was it was awesome time to be look exploring opportunities and thinking about what you want to do um you know i i would say that the i have i guess a couple of regrets i do regret um not taking more time in my 20s and early 30s to to relax and just sort of explore things um and i you know i i i don't regret all of the learning and 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 frankly the joy that I got out of the work that I did at McKinsey but there's like a whole piece of life that I missed out on by working 80 hours a week I was gonna I was gonna ask <laughs> Stretch. Like, professionally yeah I, I didn't know personally you know yeah. like um I just you know that whole and you know weddings I didn't go to because I was working and like just you know family events and I think it, you need to have enough balance. And I, I was so concerned about progressing and not, not giving up, you know, Cheryl Stanberg says like, don't give up before, don't leave before you leave, you know, like lean in and, and make sure that you're, you're giving it your all. Well, she worked at McKinsey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She was brainwashed. <laughs> yeah. She went to Harvard undergrad. She worked at McKinsey. I'm like, how come I'm not COO of Facebook? But <laughs> I don't know if that's a job you'd want, honestly. <laughs> but so, you know, so I kind of like, I always sort of read LinkedIn, leaned in and sort of said, wait, you know. Yeah. 
like I leaned, I leaned really far in, but we're of the same generation. And I felt, I frankly felt responsibility to my feminist foremothers that I had been given these opportunities and was able to be on a partnership track at McKinsey, was able to, you know, reach for the brass ring. And I felt like I really needed to. Um, and mm. I would say, you know, relax a little bit. Like, it's okay. You can, you can, what you can contribute will come out over time and you don't have to be the top of everything to be able to make that contribution. Do you, um, I'm getting the sense that you're a, you're a highly competitive person. I, I have a little competitive streak yeah, to no, me. And I, I mean, I'm, uh, that's the pot calling the kettle black for the, for the record. Um, where does that come from? Like, is that a, um, is that a Brooklyn thing? Is that, you know, like I, my, it's so funny. Both my parents are from the greater Boston area, lived in New York city for 10 years until they had me. And like, so there's a little bit of New York in you. A hundred percent. And I was born, I was born in Jersey and I feel like that like competitive nature almost from my parents was, uh, wasn't, I think part of it definitely was competitive. My mom had this competitive athletics family. Her brothers were super, um, into that and, but I, I almost feel like part of it was more manifested by the business world of them working there. Well, certainly not athletically. I uh, wasn't able to really channel my competitiveness athletically too well. I mean, I rode crew in college um, okay. and I was I was halfway decent just from the, you know, the fact of being 5'10 and, yeah. and large bones. So I was able to like just apply a lot of weight to the oar. But I wasn't really competitive athlete. Mm. Um, but but um it really came out more just in, you know, achievement at school and achievement across the board. Part of it is having a brother who's 18 months older than I am. So uh, I was always reaching for, you know, yeah. I can be as good at that as he is. Um, and part of it is being, you know, second generation American and, and people, you know, my parents having high aspirations for the achievement of both of their children. Yes. So I, that, that's kind of what resonated with me, too. It's a, I almost feel like I guess competitive is the wrong way to say it. It's almost like there was a drive ingrained by my parents that was like, I did well, but you should be able to do better than me. And it's like, and yeah. you almost, I mean, you kind of mentioned it when you said I almost felt like I had to grab that brass ring for the people who laid the ground before me. It's kind of like it's a similar mindset, which which completely conflicts slow down in your 20s and 30s, too. Right. Because you're like, man, if I can make it now. I'm going to set myself up for the future. So that's a, um, that's a yeah. hard balancing act in my opinion. I think. It is. It is. Um, but it's interesting. I, I was um, actually had a, a, a family trip to Israel and we had a, a tour guide who was a, a Sephardic Jew and was talking to me about the difference between Sephardic Jews and Ashkenazi Jews. So the Sephardic Jews come from North Africa and Egypt and Morocco and came to Israel from there. And the Ashkenazi Jews came to Israel from Eastern Europe primarily from Poland, Germany, et cetera. And, um, and he said, yeah, you know, it's really unfair because the Ashkenazi Jews came to Israel with a work ethic and they taught that work ethic to their children. So they achieved so much more. And so they have so much more. And I'm like, wow, you know, I never really thought of the privilege of having been given a work ethic, that mm. that is truly yeah. a cultural privilege that's passed down and that my parents instilled in me this desire to achieve and this need to have and what they what they wanted to, to teach us was that if you could achieve then you would have all these options open to you 
Mm-hmm. And I was talking to you a little bit before we started the podcast about um, Michelle Obama and box yes. checking. Yes. So um, I had the, the the great privilege of getting to see her at the LinkedIn um, conference last summer. And she talks about the fact that she was raised to be a box checker, right? That she wanted to go to, she went to Princeton. She wanted to work at a top law firm. She wanted to go to Harvard Law School and she wanted to achieve these things because then she had all these options open to her and she would be able to achieve. And then Barack came along and he was not at all a box checker. He was someone who had worked as a community organizer. He had you know, left his first college. He was very much you know, not in that same mode of like, I want, you know, and obviously, I mean, he was went to Harvard Law School and he was head of the law review. But just that linear path. It was, but he wasn't following that linear path. And it was totally mind blowing to her that you could become president of the United States not following a linear path. And and I think that's a very it was a very um a very good way of putting it and a very a very interesting way for her to come across that that her advice to young people is don't just check the boxes. Mm. Really explore what you want to do and explore how you're going to make a difference in the world and explore what your passions are, not from the sense of like self-expression, but from a sense of how am I, what, what are the unique things that I have been given that I can bring to the world? Mm. And I think um, that's, it was very inspirational to me and definitely something that I would love to impart to people that um, I feel like I checked a lot of boxes, right? You mentioned Harvard undergrad, Sloan yeah. for business school, McKinsey. That's a lot of box checking. Impressive. Right. Box. And yeah. yeah, but it, you know, but it was basically like, if I do these things, then I can feel secure because I've got all this stuff, these boxes checked. And frankly, that still doesn't make you secure, right? right. I've lost, been laid off from jobs and been unemployed for periods. So Really, the security comes from knowing how you can make a contribution and mm-hmm. what you can do and how you can make a difference in the world. Um, and that is what gives you security. Yes. And I would probably say the confidence in your work ethic because you know yeah. what you're going to get. Because I think there's a lot of people that would take that Michelle Obama um, advice and, and potentially misconstrue what she means of like just exploring things without giving it your all. Because it's everything looks good when you start it, right? And then you get in and you're like, ooh, man, there's yeah. a lot, you know, as everyone's got to pick up a shovel at some point. Um, exactly. No matter what you're in. So that's, uh, you You just basically described the reason to start the podcast was because, I, you know, I never described it as box checking, but uh, I definitely thought I had to, it, it was all if then statements. If I do this, then I will get that. And I, that was basically yeah. how I was certainly wired. I would say through college, even to, I would actually give credit to this company that I work for now, Davis, as well as Bob, our CEO, for almost breaking me in that regard. Like, like almost like a horse that needed to be like, you know, <laughs> bad behavioral almost. I mean, it was good because I think those things also gave you the work ethic in that environment and the discipline to do it. But it, but without it, you had a myopic view. It was like, well, if I did it this way. So then I, when I started looking to hire people, Nina, I was looking for box checkers. Yeah. And it actually became a detriment. Because yeah, I because- expected them to do, if they had done this, well, then they should do that. And it's like, well, that, you know, now I, it's, it's embarrassing to say five years later when you learn the lessons the hard way. But it's, it's, um, it, can, it can actually work against you to a degree. 
Plus, you can make a whole lot more placements if you're really looking at the whole person and not just about checking the boxes, because there's so many fewer people who check all the boxes than can actually do the job. Mm. And the trick is in finding within that person who can do the job, what is it about them that can really help them do that job? Exactly. Exactly. Right. And and uh, we always say, or we don't always say, I always said to managers, you're not looking for perfect fits. We're looking for 80%. And, and like, can the, can the 20% be coached? And, or, or do they bring 20% of experience that you haven't had before, but will be value add to your business, right? Because you're yeah. not like, especially in the high, highly technical areas, oftentimes they're looking for uh, just perfect fits. And, and I want someone who's done this exact kind of development in this exact industry on this exact technology. And it's like, and they you, only know, you know, five years of experience. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They only want to pay this amount. Exactly. I I actually used to think about people like you who worked at McKinsey. You would laugh if you thought about only three years experience. It's like, well, yeah, I have three years experience, but I worked 80 hours a week. So that's the equivalent of six years. It's like, (laughs) I've always found that to be such an interesting way that we, um, we denote someone's junior senior level by how many years they've worked. It's like, there's a lot of people who unfortunately aren't the most engaged employees. So you find a lot of people who are earlier in their career, but they might have the same experience as someone, you know, twice their senior, but but because they go home and they also learn about it. Yeah. We're just, they're fully present, you know, in in the workday. And I think that also makes a really big difference is if you can be completely awake to all of the opportunities that are around you, that's actually the way that you find the most interesting things to work on is Mm -hmm. to just look around. And not be saying, okay, where's the path? Right. Where's the path that somebody else has has trod for me that I can walk along? But to really be looking around and saying, oh, wait, there's this opportunity because if I could help make this do that, mm. then we would, you know, put it together. Hundred uh, percent. Well, I will. Um, I will help you in the crusade of combining passion and contribution. I'm gonna. I, I think that's a great way. Without to, checking boxes. Without so. checking boxes, I think that's a. <laughs> yep. I think that's a great way to do it. I, it's um, if we can only figure out the way to increase the not increase, but to create an environment to help people understand the work ethic piece of it too. Because I think that's the other thing about your whole point about the passion and the photography. We talked about a little bit of people want to get photography or the self-expression and arts, which are great. I've found in my personal experiences, a lot of people want to do that kind of stuff, but they're not willing to eat shit for lack of a better phrase in the beginning. Yeah. But I also think that there's an expectation. Well, if I work really, really hard at my photography or my screenwriting or whatever, then I'm going to make it. And Mm. it actually, you need to have a combination of working really, really hard, having an amazing amount of talent and having an incredible amount of luck. Mm. And in sports, we understand that and we say, okay, yeah. you know, yes, Tiger Woods is Tiger Woods partially because of the amount of practice that he had and the thousands of thousands of hours that he spent yes. practicing. But he also was just born Tiger Woods. Correct. Right? Correct. Like, you know, it doesn't mean that if you take your kid and you give them all the advantages that Tiger Woods had, that they will become Tiger Woods. That's not going to happen. And in sports, we sort of accept that, right? We say, oh, look, this kid has better, you know, hand-eye coordination. Yeah. This kid has more muscular strength. This kid, you know, so like we allow kids to kind of move towards the things that they have the most talent for. And we also have the tough conversations to say, 
you know, maybe this isn't the right thing for you. And I feel like we aren't doing our kids any favors by not having a tough conversation around some of the other forms of self-expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, and I think the same thing is true. Having a tough conversation is really important. And um, it's important in, in professional life as well, that someone sits down with you and says, you know, I know you want to be a salesperson, right. but I can see how much you're struggling with the cold calling, which is an aspect of what this is, right? And it's really, really hard for you. And I know we've been working on it for X amount of time, but maybe this just isn't the right fit for you. Mm -hmm. And maybe you should find something where you don't have to put yourself out there that way. Yes. And sort of try to steer people towards things that, that are kind of closer to their natural abilities and their natural affinities. Um, there's this, uh, strength finders framework yes, yes. that was talking yes. about this is you know it's about 10 years old but it was talking about um you know we often try to coach people's deficiencies up rather than focusing on the things that they are really really good at and right. allowing them to totally double down on their excellent strengths and i completely believe in that mm-hmm. well and you're doing it with a dose of like i I think there's certain people who naturally have self-awareness and there's other people you can coach it into like that cold call example you can give. It's like, mm, I am struggling. And if that, if, if I know I'm struggling and this person sees I'm struggling, okay, now I realize that this is a behavior that I'm displaying and, and it kind of increases their ability to become more self-aware too. Cause I don't think everyone has yeah. that as just a natural state. Yeah. And some people can be coached to be able to cold call, right? But other people, it's just like, stop, beating your head against the wall and trying to do this thing, which is just not something that you have an affinity for. Mm-hmm. And, and as someone who grew up in that world or lives in that world to this day, the market can also disguise the deficiencies, right? It's like, everything's going well because things are, I mean, you could just make enough dials and you're going to get lucky. And then when the market conditions change, man, does the pain be, become exacerbated uh, through yeah. the practice. So do you just, I'd be interested to know, um, based on your experience, but also like you're in the staffing world, right? Like you get the hiring dynamics. I um, was reached out to, and I don't know if it was through the podcast or just where I'm at now in my own career. I had a lot of recent college grads reach out this year, advice for job seeking and that type of, um, that type of counseling that they were looking for. And it was awesome. It was like, you know, someone did that for me. I was so happy to pay it forward. What do you think the role is now, though, of corporations in terms of, you know, the selecting and bring folks up? Because I think there is, you know, you talked about giving the self-awareness or giving the tough love conversations. And I, I've um, as someone now who's spent 10 years in the business world, it seems to me like that's not really the rule. That's more of the exception that like you're getting a lot of folks that are coming out of college, but they follow your passion but they haven't met passion with contribution and, and self-awareness. Like what's the roles do you think companies need to play? And where do you think maybe we need to do a better job as corporate America in terms of turning our recent college grads into contributing members of the, of society? There's definitely been an evolution. So for I graduated from college, even 40, 50 years ago, the expectation of corporate America was you were they were going to bring people in out of college and those people were going to stay there for their entire careers. 
That right. was the expectation of the people who are graduating from college, and it was the expectation of the corporation as well. And it was very paternalistic. We're going to take care of you. We're going to guide you. We're going to put you in the right role. And then you're just going to stay in that role for you know the rest of your career. And there may be some advancement. There may not be. But that doesn't matter because we're going to take care of you. And that sort of evolved as our corporations were unable to stay competitive that way. And they, they were, there was a lot of restructuring that happened in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we sort of lost that permanent employment model. And we moved more towards a skills-based model mm -hmm. where it was clear that the, the contract between the employee and the corporation was more focused on what the employee is gonna learn and gain and how that employee is gonna make themselves continually employable. Yeah. Um, and I look at, you know, we, uh, Bullhorn was um, a Vista equities company yes. um, when I uh, joined. Um, and Vista has a, a playbook of bringing in a lot of people um, out of college. There's, that is part of um, their model is uh, to do a lot of uh, sort of first tier hiring and bring people in and then advance those people. But it also means um, being very quick and very direct about making decisions if someone isn't a good fit and isn't working out. You bring mm -hmm. in these high potential individuals, but then you also say, hey, this isn't a fit, you know, and you, you, you don't hesitate to separate. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really part of the equation now on both sides is that you need to be able to be honest about when it is and isn't working. If the employee is not gaining skills that's going to, that are going to help them be employable in the future, then they're not getting out of it what they need to get out of it as well. Mm. It's a it's a simple concept, very difficult to execute. And also uh, painful at the individual level. Yeah, I you know, as I mentioned before, I've been laid off a couple of times and it's not fun. It doesn't matter fun. where you are in your career, um, you know, or even what the why is, um, it is not a pleasant experience. And I think um, regardless of the, where the person is in their career, it's difficult. I find for um, entry level applicants or recent college grads, you might be giving them some of the first dose of reality of, of where their skills are misaligned. And it's uh, there's a huge emotional component that goes along with it as well, right? And yeah. I think you can't, like my message to new college grads is don't worry about it. Like if you get, like the, those aren't firings the same way that you would think of firing like in the future. That's just like you tr experimented and it didn't work. Yeah. And one of the questions that you sent to me in advance was about failure. Yes. Um, and uh, John Schwang, who was the CEO at Aquint, used to say, fail often, but fail fast. Fail fast, right? Yes. Um, and I truly believe that. And um, and I was, was going to say, I've failed in a lot of different ways, but I've always learned something from every one of those failures, whether it was launching a business that didn't take, creating a partnership that you know, didn't didn't take off, hiring someone who didn't work out. You know, all of those failures are things that you think you, give you an opportunity to learn and to grow and to, to be a better manager or a better leader in the future. So yes, I think that's a, I'm uh, all for failing. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, do you find yourself um, now 
obviously established in your career and confident in your skill set, do you still find yourself waking up some mornings being like, whew, I'm nervous about how today is going to go? Well, I guess back to the quote, right? The yeah. only thing really to fear is fear itself, fear right? Yeah. So I think, you know, those moments when I do feel um, like, hmm, you know, nervous or I, I don't perform my best, right? I'm mm. not, I, I'm more defensive. I'm not as generous. I tend to, um, you know, want to score points or, you know, have some other agenda. And it's, it's, if I can let go of that fear and I can just bring my whole self to the situation and do my best, like doing my best was never a thing my parents told me. You know, people mm -hmm. say, oh, your parents tell you to do your best. No, I was never do your best. It was always get it done. Perform, yeah. <laughs> Perform, get it done, like do your best. What kind of crap is that? <laughs> but I now know that actually I do better if I'm just trying to do my best, right? And, and I think you have to have a balance of the two because you do have to get it done. And if you only tell people do your best and you don't hold them accountable to achieving goals and to really yeah. you know getting it done that's a problem but in any given meeting or any given situation if i start to get fearful that i'm not going to be able to get it done the stuff that happens is not pretty mm, right so if i can just bring my whole self to how do i get this done in an empathetic and open-minded way it's much better is the, i was going to ask you how do you manage it like, do, do you manage it different, like, in the moment than you might manage it? I don't know if you take the train into work, but reflecting on the train into work that uh, on the way home that day or the way in the next day? Like, how for you, is it just saying, how can I get this done and stay calm? Or do you have other kind of um, self-maintenance tips or self-love self tips that you use? I think it's really about self-awareness and bringing up, bringing that to the forefront of recognizing that, um, the be negative behaviors come from that place of fear. Mm. I was very afraid of losing effectiveness if I didn't bring the emotion into the arena, right? If I didn't bring my disappointment or anger or frustration into the room and I didn't express that with a strong enough, yeah. you know, assertiveness. clarity, assertiveness, yeah. then people weren't going to understand that what had happened was really not okay. Mm. And I would be a doormat and stuff wouldn't happen. And you can get, I, I, I sometimes call it bringing my hammer. Like I have a hammer and I can bring the hammer and it, but bringing the hammer can get something done in the short term and it can be very effective. But in the long term, if you have to work with people over a long period of time, only using the hammer isn't going to be effective mm -hmm. as a consultant. I would more frequently need to bring the hammer because part of what you're doing in McKinsey was you were shaking things up and making change happen. So you had to go in and say, no, you know, the amount of money that you're paying us to do this project, we are going to have this meeting on this day. Yeah. Right. And I'm not going to accept no for an answer. We're going to figure out how to make it happen. Mm. Whereas I can take a longer view yeah. working within a company and say, why is it hard for us to have this meeting on this day? What else can we do? How can we get, make progress on this without having the meeting? You know, it can be a little bit more flexible in how I think about this. So really it's, it's taking that deep breath and recognizing that I can be more effective by not bringing all of yes you that almost into the, the game come to you a little bit 
as you play yeah. it, as opposed to being so proactive. It's a, yeah. I, think it's a I don't use sports analogies, but that is a good sports analogy. Yeah, like, I know, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> that's all I've been doing today, sorry. I, you know, <laughs> but yes, it's letting, letting the game come to you. Do you feel like that's a maturity thing? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a confidence thing and a maturity thing because okay. yeah. it requires that the fear comes from a lack of confidence, right? The fear comes from a concern about your vulnerability and who, you know, whether, whether you really are enough to be bringing to this. Yeah. And so if you can just be like, no, I, you know, I'm enough. Yes. <laughs> right? Right. Then right. you can kind of come in there without the fear. Right. Uh, that's, um, that really resonates with me, honestly, actually uh, having a conversation with you. Uh, Nina, this has been awesome. We're almost at over an hour. I, I'd love for you, do you have any other words you'd love to share with the audience, again, who might be looking at new careers or, or any uh, final advice you'd love to share with folks? We hit a lot, though, and it was, it was we did. I really we did. enjoyed our conversation, by the way. Awesome. So I would just say that I, I read a book called Composing a Life. Mm. Um, and it was all about nonlinear career paths. Okay. And it was saying that you you don't have to think of it as an arc. You can think of it as a mosaic. Yeah. And each one of the experiences that you have is a tile that's building up this picture of your life. And you don't have to be so concerned about what in any individual tile looks like as long as the overall picture is coming together in a way that stays true to who you are. Yes. Um, what a great way to, to mentally accept the failures that happen, right? Because you're like, you know what? Yeah. I failed. I failed fast. When I look back on it, I'm not going to remember that. I'm not going to. Oh, I still, still remember You'll that, remember but. it. But people will see that as the totality yes. of your work. Yeah. Uh, which is awesome. Now, Nina, this has been awesome. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. I, um, I'm going to have to check that book out and, and think on some more things. I'd maybe love to have you back for some more intellectual thought. That was great. Happy to chat anytime and next time in person. Yes, please. Please, maybe with a Manhattan. Maybe. Take care. Okay. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye. Bye.